Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Many of us get a lot of our medical information from fictional TV shows like Grey's Anatomy or Chicago Med. And after watching episode after episode like myself, you feel like you can perform a tracheotomy at a local coffee shop if something happens to go down. Today, I'm here with Dr. Daniel Yu, an emergency medicine physician from the Dr. Robert Harris Emergency Care Center at Bayshore Medical Center in Homedell to walk us through a couple of things we can do while help is on the way. Thank you for being here, Dr. Yu. Thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. So first things first, is the emergency room really as exciting as these medical shows make it seem? At times, yes, it is. It is uh, very fast-paced, chaotic, uh, intense, but there are times where there's where you take time and see your patients, take care of them, communicate, and and just take time with the patient. But uh, it's not like what the TV show is portraying. But there are times where it's very, very critical, and time matters. So with that, let's start talking about something not super intense. So if someone's choking, what should someone do if they're they're choking? First of all, you want to assess the, if they can talk or not. All right, if they're conscious or not. If they're awake and they are choking, then what you want to do is you want to start administering the back blow and also going standing behind them and using what they call the Heimlich maneuver. And you want to put your two hands underneath the rib cage and you want to do 10 thrusts as much as possible to expel whatever is item in the airway. Should you be worried that you're going to like break? That little sternum area, is that even the sternum? I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, the sternum, uh, we are actually putting our hands below the sternum, okay. right? Uh, around where the stomach is located. The issue with this is that if the patient has a, a potential airway compromise, or if there's actually uh, something that's occluding the airway, you have to clear the airway, whatever way you can. Otherwise, if the patient has no oxygen going to their brain, to the heart, that will die, all right? so. To actually open up the airway, you do everything you can. And sure, there is actually a, uh, some repercussion with actually using the Heimlich maneuver, but that can be taken care of, all right? The most important thing, the priority is opening up the airway. And what about if you're alone in your apartment, such as myself, most of the time? A lot of times in this situation, what you want to do is you want to get to the t- uh, table or you want to actually put your hands underneath that rib cage in the center and you want to push yourself against it, all right, to try to expel it, all right, as much as possible. But you do need to call 911, all right, before you even pass out. So call 911, but you want to actually pull, push your hands between, uh, just below the sternum, uh, in the upper portion of your abdomen, and push yourself hard against the table, all right, and try to expel it out. Because I must tell you, that is one of my biggest fears living in, a par- in an apartment by myself, that I am going to just choke on a potato chip and that is going to be the end for me. <laughs> I think the potato chips is, uh, I think it's going to melt, 
potato chips will melt. <laughs> okay, but more solid items, yes,、uh, the meat or anything that's more solid, yes, those are potentially、uh, dangerous,、uh, including sometimes with the little children.、Um, I see a, a children coming in with the、uh, grapes in their airway. These some of those fruits, right? That it, it may be healthy for them. The vegetables, the carrots, those are healthy for them. But you have to make sure that doesn't diced and small enough for them to swallow. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so my next question is: What about an allergic reaction? Allergic reaction we see uh, uh, quite often in the emergency department. The reason why is because I see that that rise of the、uh, autoimmune process. The nut allergy, food allergies, environmental allergies. So we are seeing more and more of these patients coming through the、uh, emergency department. The most important thing is also in these patients are the airway. What happens is that with your immune system revving up, it can actually create a significant swelling in the airway. Only one medicine is effective in this. Early on, being administered to the patient potentially save their lives is called epinephrine, right? Most of the patients that have allergies are diagnosed with allergic reaction, and they should be carrying epinephrine with them. If they have it, you can help them administer it. All right. And what you want to do is you, there's an instruction usually on the epipen itself. Oh, good. But it's straightforward. You actually plunge that needle onto the thigh, and what you want to administer as soon as possible. All right. If they're having a severe allergic reaction, they can't speak. They are having difficulty breathing. It needs to be administered early. All right.、Um, a lot of times, people are concerned. Oh my goodness! I have to put a jab of needle into somebody's thigh. That will save that person's life. It will. All right. So don't be afraid. By the way, we don't like to administer into the shoulder muscles. It's a thigh muscle because the thigh muscle is the biggest muscle in your body, the musculoskeletal muscle.、Mm-hmm. And what happens? The blood flow. There can carry off the epinephrine throughout the body faster, so administering the thigh. So nothing like directly into the chest, thigh.、Uh, no, not to the heart, not the not the intracardiac epi.、Um, yes, right into the thigh area would be the best thing. And then, what if you didn't have an epipen? That's the potential、uh, danger: is that you know calling the nine one one early so that they can get the epinephrine in early. All right, and、uh, staying. With the patient being calm,、um, but that's the only thing you can do. Now, if the patient does become unconscious and they're not breathing, then you need to start the CPR right away. What about Benadryl or anything like that? Benadryl is something that you can administer, but it doesn't work as fast as epinephrine. It takes time for Benadryl to kick in. Sure, you can administer the Benadryl, but you make sure the patient is conscious. Is able to swallow. The problem I have is that when people have an airway occlusion and swelling, they're going to have difficulty swallowing the, any type of pills. All right, so that's one of the problems that I have. But if they can talk and they can swallow, yeah, sure, you can actually give some Benadryl. It's okay. All right, but you cannot, you cannot.、Uh, I can't stress enough how important the early administration of epinephrine is important for the survival. And then, would you, after epinephrine, would you have to be? Okay, or should you still go to the hospital? I think you should still come to the hospital because that allergic reaction was that severe enough that you needed epinephrine. You need to be monitored to make sure there's no rebound effect, because with the epinephrine sometimes it wears off, and what happens is that that allergic reaction can come back again and cause rebound effect. So you need to be monitored. 
Got it. And so you actually brought up one of my questions, and that was about CPR. When, where, how should we administer CPR? CPR is so important in the chain of survival. Um, as a bystander, if you can administer CPR, um, that would improve the patient's trajectory, all right? Um, it would definitely benefit the patient's survival rate. Um, CPR is administered on patients who are unconscious and who are not breathing, right? That's straightforward. These days with pandemic, obviously, they don't recommend mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. But doing 100 compressions per minute which is quite fast. Yes. But deep and deliberate and also fast, not only actually uh, squeezes the heart, but also, also at the same time ventilates the lung, right, with the compression. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, anybody who's unconscious, who's not breathing, start the CPR, chest compression right away. Are there any common mistakes that you see when, when you see some, someone who's had CPR prior to arriving at the emergency department? Sometimes uh, they are slow and they're not deep enough. You have to have at least about two centimeters of thrust into the chest and you have to go quick, all right? A lot of times people are not doing deep compression and they're slow, all right? And that's one of the big mistakes about it too. The other thing is that uh, where they're doing the compression of the chest, they have to make sure that it's actually across the chest, like the mid of the mid center of the chest, right in the center of the sternum, using two hands with the arms locked, and uh, that needs to be done. By the way, you do get fatigued because if you're only one who's doing it, all right. So you, you need to call the 911 early. If there's a bystander who can also help you doing the CPR, that'd be great. Change it off, all right, mm-hmm. and just actually go continuously, right, without stopping. So. Is it true to use this song, Staying Alive? Oh, absolutely. I love that song. <laughs> yes, I love that song. Yes, you can use that song uh, to actually keep, uh, keep the, the pace, beat. keep the beat, all right? 100 compressions per minute. And how would you know, all right, now's the, ter- now's the time to do CPR? They're not breathing. Like, would you check their nose, their pulse, all those kinds of things to know that they're, they're truly not ble- There's breathing? There are several ways of checking them. You can actually lean over to hear any sounds from their nose and their mouth. You can also look at the chest to mm-hmm. see if there's any movement at all whatsoever. If you don't hear any of that or you don't see any of the chest rises, yes, you need to start the compression, all right? It's hard for lay person to actually say, all right, that this patient is not breathing sometimes, mm-hmm. all right? Sometimes people have a very shallow breath, but if the patient's unconscious and they're not responding to you, okay, best thing to do is CPR, all right? Don't hesitate to do the CPR. Let's say that if you do the CPR and the patient comes around, God bless you, all right? <laughs> you, did, you did a great job, the patient survived, all right? But if they're not responding and you're still doing the compression, that means that you're doing everything you can for that patient's survival. There's no drawback to the, doing a CPR, all right? Patient who's unresponsive and who is not waking up and who is not breathing. So is there any... You mentioned how there's no like downfall to CPR. What if the person's breathing though? Is there any downfall there? No? Yeah, if the person's breathing, then you want to hold off on the CPR, all right? Because and basically, if you're breathing, then you want to support their airway, yeah. all right? But if they're breathing, I would hold off on doing the CPR. Now, if they stop breathing as the time goes on, oh yeah, you gotta start, 
All right. I feel like you would feel that too. You if you were trying to do CPR, you would feel them breathing. And, and you can also see the chest rise or so. All right. So at least they're breathing. Okay. But if the breathing stops as the time goes on, monitor carefully the airway and the breathing movement of the chest. If not, if they stop breathing, jump on the chest right away. What about AEDs? So you see them a lot of times in schools and, you know, at concert venues and things like that. When should someone use that? And should a person that's not educated on it even think about using something like that? AED requires a little bit of training and a little bit of knowledge of how to use it, but now they made the AED very easy. There's a simple instruction, three-step instructions now included, very straightforward where to put the pads on, all right? And uh, all you have to do is just turn on the machine, and what happens is that this machine actually analyzes the patient's rhythm and it tells you, all right, when to actually uh, do the, uh, uh, push, the button. push the button um, and also when to check for pulses, all right? So it has a program built into it, so it's much easier to use now than ever. That said, um, the patient who is unresponsive or who are not breathing, mm -hmm. Yes, those are the people that you really need to get AED on, all right? Because the most common cause of death in the United States is still acute heart attack. And when you have acute heart attack, patients go into very, very dangerous rhythms. It's called the V-fib and V-tag. And these are very shockable rhythm. That means that once you shock them, that rhythm can go back to normal sometimes. So you can save that person's life by early administration of the CPR and AED. So when would you know, all right, I should stop CPR, do AED? What happens then when, as soon as you call the 911, let the professionals come in, but while you're doing this, as you're doing the CPR, you want to call for AED. If, like, for instance, you're in the airport and somebody mm -hmm. becomes unconscious, there's going to be a lot of bystanders, and you call for help, and then call for AED as you're doing the compression right away. They'll bring the AED, and they'll help you, all right, with other bystanders to put this on. But if you open up the AED, already the instructions there, put where the pads are. As you put the pads on, then you continue the compression, all right? And then what happens is that this machine will tell you, analyzing, analyzing, and it tell you whether the patient has a shockable rhythm or not, all right? That's how you do it. Oh, okay. All right, so it's made it so much easier yeah. for any lay person that you just open up, put the pads on, do the CPR, they're analyzing the rhythm. If it's a shock or rhythm, they tell you shock. I know you have to do is press the button, all right? Wow. And then you continue on with the compression too until the person becomes more conscious, all right? Okay. Then you hold off, back off on the CPR, all right? So that's how it's done, but yeah, it's, uh, it's become so much easier now. Yeah, machine. I would hope by that time, someone who knew what they were doing showed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, a lot of sports venues, uh, lots of uh, stadiums, um, where, wherever there is edge conventions or a lot of uh, mass gathering, now they have AEDs available in the, within you know short reach. Mm -hmm. So it's a great movement uh, by the uh, American Heart Association right, to put those AEDs on all these venues. Yeah, I actually remember, I, I, I recall the day in, I guess it was my high school when we got an AED. It was like a very big day yes. that we got an AED in the school. And granted, there was only one, um, but I remember it being a very big deal. Yeah, it is. It actually it helps with a significant improvement of the survival rate on the patients now. Um, I remember, I remember um, there was a patient who had a cardiac arrest in the airport, and 
and they were doing a bystander CPR right away. AD came on board, shocked the patient, had to be shocked several times actually. And uh, when they arrived to the emergency department, patient had on the EKG a massive MI, massive heart attack. Patient was taken straight to the cath lab within like a very short time. Had a great survival. Neurologic outcome, of course it took time for him to recover, but he walked out of the hospital fully awake alert, fully had no neurologic deficit at all. Wow. Um, it's a great, great story. And this story is repeated throughout the whole United States because what we do, the awareness of CPR and AED. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So what about bleeding? It probably depends on the severity of the bleeding, but when, how much is too much blood? This is actually a question for my PA friends. I have a lot of friends who are PAs. And every time I cut myself or do something, I'm always like, all right, so how much blood is too much blood? It's been bleeding for 20 minutes. Is that too much blood? So how much blood is too much blood and when should we come to the ED? It's, the, it's hard to say how much is too much is blood. Um, we know that human being holds about five to six liters of blood. About when you actually have cuts, like minor cuts in the fingers, on the extremities, um, in the hands and legs and arms, what happens is that you are going to see some bleeding, all right? But if the bleeding becomes very brisk and you can't, comp you can't uh, even though despite the fact that you apply significant pressure and the bleeding is not stopping, yeah, you need to seek medical help right away, all right? Um, small cuts, yeah, it is going to bleed, but if you can hold the compression, it can stop the bleeding. And you, by the way, when you do the uh, compression, you have to hold it for quite a while. I'm talking about 10 to 15 minutes. You can't check on it, by the way, all right? Sure, it's going to soak, all right? Whatever you're holding, like as in tissues or cloth that you're compressing with. But if the bleeding gets... It's not stopping after 10 to 15 minutes. You need, you need help. You need to actually come to the emergency department so we can take care of it. Now, there are ins instances where, for instance, in the trauma patients, when they are bleeding so briskly, um, despite the pressure, sometimes we have to put a tourniquet onto that extremity, all right, to, to that area uh, to stop the bleeding. But yes, with the uh, you know, average type of cut, if the bleeding does not stop in about 10 to 15 minutes despite the compression, you're going to need help, all right? So like, for example, I cut myself cutting an avocado, which apparently is a very common thing to do. Um, and my finger was bleeding for about 20 minutes. And after about 20 minutes, I called my friend and was like, hey, uh, this has been bleeding for a while. Should I come see anybody or do anything about this? And eventually it stopped. Probably should have came to the ED. Did you but have a repair, by the way? Did you actually uh, get a... No, I, no. It, I do have a scar on my finger from it. It has changed my fingerprint. Um, but yeah, no. And then the next day, whole nother catastrophe because I ended up opening it again. And then it's just like a whole thing. Because on your index finger, you use that finger for everything. Correct, correct. Um, but you mentioned a tourniquet. Yeah. How would someone know how to do a tourniquet? Well, the tourniquet it actually also requires a little bit of training. Also, uh, I carry tourniquet in my car. Right away, if, just in do case you really? Yeah, I do. I do carry. I do carry uh, like a first aid kit just in case if I have to help somebody 
but tourniquet actually is critical in a patient with a massive bleeding. I'm talking about people who are um, having a, a significant trauma to their extremities. Yeah, like their leg cut off. Yeah. And then what happens is that a lot of times with the, uh, this type of bleeding, it's more over arterial bleeding that I'm concerned about. Arterial bleeding, the blood vessels lie deep inside the, the tissue next to, almost to the bones. So essentially when you have that type of bleeding, um, you're going not only, despite the compression, you can't really compress those arteries very well. Next step is actually going to getting the tourniquet and putting it above that bleeding site and tightening it, all right? So that help uh, reduce the bleeding and that would actually help them with the survival, all right? Uh, but uh, there's many different types of tourniquet uh, that's available on the market and it's sold also, but it's very easy to use. You just wrap it around the, uh, whatever the arms or legs, and essentially there's actually a plastic uh, uh, device that just, you can crank it. And what happens is that it tightens and tightens until it stops. Of course, you are gonna have, the person is gonna experience significant amount of discomfort and pain. So you have to be deliberate and purposeful in the, um, putting the tourniquet on. What about a belt? Belt is perfect, belt is perfect. If you don't have a tourniquet, obviously, a uh, belt is terrific. Um, you tighten that up as much as possible. Same thing with actually, if you don't have a belt, then you know, you gotta use your shirt, all right? You gotta need to wrap that around that extremity and tighten that shirt, all right? And as uh, much as possible, all right? Yeah, because I'm actually watching a show right now where everyone just seems to get very injured very quickly. There are a lot of tourniquets in this show, um, and they usually use their belts. <laughs> if you wanted to know. Yeah, you can use your tie, you can use your shirt, whatever <laughs> it's available for you. Oh, goodness. Well, you mentioned your first aid kit. What's in your first aid kit so that I can pack my own? I, well, I use a standard. Uh, it's sold over the counter. It's a commercial uh, a bag. And what it does is it has a tourniquet. It has a, uh, multiple different types of bandage. It has a scissors. Um, it also has some uh, has a small type of forcep also. Um, there's also a, uh, uh, a silver lining lined blanket because what happens is when patients actually have a significant trauma, uh, one of the things that also you want to do is you want to keep them warm because when they're cold, they can't clot fast enough. So you want to keep them warm. It's going to actually also help them with the shock. All right, so there's a silver blanket there, actually a thermal blanket there. Um, but mostly it's just a gauze and cling um, and uh, just a Band-Aid or so, um, and also scissors. This is going to sound really morbid. Yeah. But in a lot of movies, of war movies, things like that, when the patient's bleeding out, for example, they're always shivering. Is that why? Because their blood can't clot and they're cold? What happens is that if you're losing significant amount of blood, yeah, you tend to actually become a more hypothermic or your blood pressure, uh, blood pressure drops. drops and your, your also the temperature drops also. And also you remember that when you're in trauma, you're having a adrenaline and epinephrine pumping out from your adrenal gland. That also causes a, a, what they call the vasoconstriction. Your blood vessels tends to clamp down. That's the reaction uh, from the blood loss and they want to maintain your blood pressure high. So they're trying to divert all the blood into the central system. What happens? Your extremity becomes cold. 
You want to mm-hmm. preserve the blood flow to the brain, to the heart, and the kidney. That's your body's autonomic response. So what it does is shuts down the blood flow to the rest of the body. And now they become more hypothermic. They become more cold. And they're shocky, shivering, chills. That's the reason why there's a blanket in that first aid kit where I just open it up and just wrap that, that patient, all right, if they're shivering and they're cold, so yeah. that prevent them from going to further shock and a further bleeding. Yeah, makes sense, yeah. absolutely. There was another question that came up when I was talking to my colleagues about talking to an emergency medicine physician today, and one of them was the ED versus an urgent care. When should we go, which one should we go to, and when should we go to them? I think the urgent care is able to handle minor injuries, uh, cuts, sprains, uh, cold, URI symptoms, but more serious symptoms like headache, chest pain, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, uh, vomiting, things like that. Um, Those needs to be seen by us. All right. Um, urgent care, sure, they can handle, you know, getting the x-rays done for possible breaks, sprains. Um, if you're having any, uh, in like, uh, sore throat or uh, just the minor issues, absolutely. All right. But the emergency department, um, if you're having any uh, symptoms that seems like more serious than that, I would have you come to the uh, emergency department be evaluated. And you recently had a major upgrade at Bayshore Medical Center. Anything you can tell us about it? First of all, um, it's such a great facility. Uh, it's about three times the size of prior emergency department. Uh, we have a 32 rooms, uh, patient care, all individual rooms. Um, it's just a wonderful place. Um, uh, everything's just upgraded. and. Uh, uh, we're just so thankful that we have the facility to just serve our community, all right? And the response from the, our community, overwhelmingly, they're just amazed. They're so happy to be treated in the uh, Robert Harris uh, Emergency Care Center. Um, I'm very proud to be part of it. Anything else you'd like to share about what we should know in the case of an emergency? I think that um, when you have a emergency, especially we are seeing headlines of mass uh, casualties. Yeah. Uh, we may be called upon to help uh, those people who are severely injured. I think that we have to be mindful, uh, first of all, about the safety, uh, being staying safe, uh, but also helping those people who are injured severely. I think that we can be a a dead chain of survival that help before the uh, first aid comes that golden hour is so important that i think that we need to uh be trained and also be knowledgeable about what we can do Um, staying calm and stopping the bleeding and just being with the patients who are severely injured and comforting them I think it will go a long way to helping those people. But I think everybody should learn how to do CPR. Everybody should know how to use the AED. It's going to really change uh, the people's lives and make a huge difference in the people's survival. And actually, we have a number of CPR classes and Stop the Bleed classes. And we will link over to that so anyone interested can check that out. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Yu. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you very much.
If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.